Grace College again. We're going to be uh, digging into John chapter 3 and uh, looking forward to breaking some of this down. Excited about what God is going to reveal tonight. So let's just open with a word of prayer and ask God to speak to us in this chapter. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you, God, for your goodness and your mercy to us. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together and open up your word. I pray, Lord, that something that is said tonight would uh, be a revelation to some and encouragement to others. We pray, God, that you would just allow us to draw closer to you through your word. We'll be careful to give you praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. It is, uh, this chapter is, again, I'm going to say it probably every week, but we always have to remember that the foundation of what John is writing this whole book about, and that's going back to what we taught in John chapter 1, the re revealing of the Lord to us, Jesus to us. And so as he shares these uh, stories um, of Jesus and the interactions with people, He's really once again trying to let us know a little bit more about the Lord himself. So we want to start um, in John chapter 3. I want to read the first uh, I should probably turn my phone off. Um, we got one of those family texts going around. Uh, John chapter 3, we want to start at verse number 1, and I'm going to read through verse number 6 for the beginning part of this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so uh, I want to begin to break some of these down here. And last Sunday I preached a message on baptism, um, and, and you can go back online and reference that. So we're not really talking specifically about baptism tonight, but I do want to talk about being born again. Or the word again there probably would be better translated born from above. Being born from above. Now remember going back to chapter 1 where John laid his foundation in verses 12 and 13. He said to them that believed God, to them gave you power to become the sons of God or the children of God. And, uh, and so now we're seeing another passage here where Jesus is talking about becoming really a child again, if you will, or a child of God in this way, shape, or form. So we want to first of all talk about Nicodemus a little bit. 
Uh, he was uh, uh, of the aristocracies of Jerusalem. He was a big deal. Um, he was, and, and, and so Jesus isn't just talking to just an everyday person. This was a religious leader. He was well thought of in the community. Um, and there's some things that we want to identify with it, with this. Uh, letter A in your notes, he must have been wealthy because a few years later, Nicodemus pays for the body of Christ along with the myrrh and old aloes in the amount that only a wealthy man could really afford. So Nicodemus probably had, along with Joseph of Arimathea, uh, probably was well to do. And uh, also we kind of understand that he was well to do because of his occupation, which is letter B, he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. And it's interesting to note that there were never more than 6,000 in Israel. Um, they were what was known as a chaburah or a brotherhood. And so these men were the elites, if you will, of the religious sector of that day. And their oath was spent uh, or to spend their lives in observing, observing and consequently judging, condemning those that do not keep every detail of the law. These were the ones, this is, this is who Jesus battled with. This is who, uh, because Jesus, if you remember in John chapter one, grace and truth came by Christ. And it was, we, we talked about the replacement, if you will, or the fulfillment more than the replacement of the Old Testament law in the man Christ Jesus. And so the Pharisees weren't, that's why the Pharisees didn't like him because Jesus was stepping into their territory to where they weren't going to be able to dictate to the people what to do, how to do it, when to do it. And we're gonna discuss a couple of those here in a minute. See, to the Jew, the law was the most sacred thing in the entire world. Uh, in fact, it was written, and I wanna say, it was written in the Mishnah, but I'm not positive with, with where my reference is here. But the law is complete is what it was written. It contains everything necessary for the living of a good life. Therefore, in the law, there must be a regulation to govern every possible incident in every possible moment for every possible man. That would wear me out. <laughs> but that's what the Pharisees were all about. They lived their lives to come up with a law or a dictate that would meet every single situation for every single person for every single moment. And the Mishnah, I, I'm, I didn't grab any of the copies, so if, if, I, if I pass and there's a blank, just raise your hand. But the Mishnah is the codified scribal law. Okay, where the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, the Mishnah was the Pharisees' interpretation, and their interpretation added a whole lot to it. The Jews carried the law so far as to uh, buy into this Mishnah as the codified uh, law. And, and there's a couple of examples that we want to uh, give you because they, they believe this so strongly. Uh, the, the biggest one is the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day. I think that might be number one, maybe. Uh, the Sabbath day. No. Okay. 
Yes, please, thank you. <laughs> I thought I just copied my sheet, but maybe I didn't. Um, but the Sabbath day was, it, it began obviously in the Ten Commandments of keeping the holy. Okay, so letter A, Nicodemus must have been wealthy. Letter B, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. So the Sabbath day, the Sabbath day um, was in the Ten Commandments to begin with, uh, and so we're simply told that we're supposed to keep the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments and, and, and make sure that it's holy. Uh, and on that day, no work was to be done, And uh, but they got down to the nitty-gritty of the law to where, for instance, if you were a writer, you couldn't write. If you were a fisherman, you couldn't tie a knot, okay? You couldn't do anything. Um, but then they created ways to get around it. An example of that is the, the have, have you ever heard of the Sabbath day's journey? The Sabbath day's journey was a certain amount of um, distance that they could they, that they could go, a, a, I don't know, it's about a quarter of a mile. It's 2,000 cubits, about 1,000 yards, okay? This is how far they could walk. Unless they have ownership where they're connected. And so, in, in other words, I can walk my Sabbath day's journey from my house, but if I own this one over here as well, or if I own this property, well, then I'm not breaking it. And so what the Jews would do is they would buy up different places so that they could travel all day on the Sabbath day's journey without breaking the Sabbath. Okay, getting around the law. Because don't we all do that? I mean, you just look at, don't, don't shake your head, no. <laughs> the, we all get around the law, okay? We all drive five miles an hour over, no more than that. We, we you know, but, but you understand what I'm saying, and that's what they were doing. Um, in Jeremiah, they weren't allowed to act, to carry a burden. Um, so, because that was considered work, and so that was kind of what they did. It was the it was the Pharisees that dictated and set out what all these laws were, and because of the way that the Old Testament was structured, um, and, and the way the the religious system was set up, it was another reason why Jesus didn't go over well, very well because Jesus was having a personal relationship with the people, and it was it was not. They weren't able to to control. They weren't able to dictate what was going on. And so I believe that uh, we have to understand that Nicodemus is having this conversation with Jesus and his question about can a man go back into a, a mother's womb and be born again wasn't coming from a confused attitude I don't believe I think he was wanting the detail 
He was wanting Jesus to put across every T and dot every I and make it plain as day because that's what the Pharisees did. And, and I don't believe, because I do believe Nicodemus was a converted Pharisee, but I believe that what he was looking for in this conversation was something in detail that he can balance everything that he had to stand for as a Pharisee. So almost, for lack of a better term, I think he was looking for arguments against what he was had held for so long, but it wasn't just the, you know, the miracles. It wasn't the supernatural. It was that he wanted details. He wanted inside knowledge. He wanted to know what was actually happening. And, and really, it's the reason why uh, even today, I wish we had more Nicodemuses that didn't go flying off with every whim, you know, or every spiritual, what would be considered, uh, because there's a lot of spirit out there that's not all the spirit. Does that make sense? And you can get off on a tangent and you can see miracle signs and wonders and get totally and be totally confused because you're following the signs instead of following the details. The word of God, if if anything happens in the spirit world today that is of God, it's going to be agreeable to scripture. Okay? And so we give the Pharisees a bad rap, and, and we should, because they really made it difficult for people to actually be believers, even in Judaism, let alone Christianity. But at the same time, we have to understand they were the ones that were seeking things out, and while they made mistakes, this this Pharisee in particular, Nicodemus, went beyond the the show, if you will. And because if you all if all you're doing is chasing the miracles you're going to have a life like this. Because as long as the miracles are happening, you're in tune. But when the miracles aren't happening, and it scares me when I see people on social media every day talking about God said this, God said this, God said this, and have all these conversations every single night because uh, that's just not the way that God has ever worked. Um, and, and, and so, but they sound good. They it's the, the way that they share visions and dreams and all. And so people get swallowed up in that and they don't take the time to take that vision or that dream that he just shared and put it into scripture and say, okay, does this fit the overall meaning of scripture? And then they get confused when it doesn't happen. Now, there's a lot of people out there that are used in dreams and visions and I don't disregard them, but my point is not to not listen to them but to make sure to balance them with the word of God. And this conversation with Nicodemus, I believe that's really what's happening. Nicodemus has been enthralled with the miracles. He said, no man does these kind of miracles unless God's with him. So we know that you're a teacher. We know that you're a rabbi. But what's what? I, I want to go deeper. I want to, I want to get to where the details are. And uh, I think we would be wise to do that ourselves. So letter or number... Or letter C in your notes, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was a ruler. The word in Greek is archon, and it simply means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And in those days, 
the Sanhedrin had spiritual or religious, more than spiritual, the religious jurisdiction over every Jew in the world. This lets us know probably why the scripture says that he came to Jesus at night. Because he was going against the protocols of the Sanhedrin uh, that he was a part of. And so, uh, if nothing else, just talking to Jesus. Because you have to remember, Jesus was, you know, to us, Jesus is a celebrity. Right? I mean, he, he, he's known by everybody. But in that day, he was known as the carpenter's son from Nazareth. And even one of his disciples, we read in, in the first chapter, what good thing can come out of Nazareth. So by Nicodemus calling him into the court of the Sanhedrin to have this discussion, Nicodemus having a meal with him, he would have brought ridicule and, and all kinds of things because they were higher. The, the hierarchy of the religious leaders. And so he goes to Jesus by night. And that's important to understand, I believe as well, because of the hunger of Nicodemus. And the it gives us the insight that the people of that day were dealing with. The Sanhedrin had their thumbs on the religious world of that day. They controlled it. It wasn't controlled. See, we're so used to, especially here in America, we're so used to the freedom to worship as we see fit. That's not the way it was then. If you were a Jew, you worshipped the way the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin especially said to worship. Okay? It was, it was a control situation more than a freedom to worship. And so even when people came to the temple, even when Jesus was 12 and taught in the temple, there were still protocols that were, that were happening in that place. And it was one of the reasons why uh, throughout Jesus' life, the Pharisees were anti-Christ. They were against Christ because he broke the protocols of the control that they had. And then letter D, it may well be that Nicodemus belonged to a distinguished family. And uh, this is uh, partly we find that through manners and customs, Josephus, Eusebius as well. And uh, we just mentioned about him coming at night. I I've given two reasons here in your scripture. The first one, it may have been a sign of caution. Again, he wasn't totally sure of this man named Jesus. And I don't know that he was willing to throw everything away for Jesus until he knew a little bit more. Can I just say, we forget sometimes that we view things with the, the full story already. Okay, 2020 hindsight. We, we, we look back and we're like, what? why didn't you just believe Jesus? But you have to realize Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. This was this carpenter's kid that was going around doing things, drawing a crowd away from, you see what I'm saying? We get friends, that's Thomas. We blasted Thomas forever as Doubting Thomas. Okay, And I understand the concept of having faith without seeing, but 
wouldn't it be better to look at Thomas and saying at least he recognized when it was in front of him and he jumped on it and said, my Lord, my God. Because otherwise, it's one of the reasons why we have dealt with people in our ministry, and I'm sure that you have talked to people. They jump from place to place, all over the place. Every concept that's out there because they haven't taken the time to doubt anything or question anything. Okay? And so because the preacher sounded good, they believed the preacher. Because the singing was good, they believed the singing. Because all of a sudden it was a happening service the day that they were there, they buy into it. It's the reason why we don't tell, we tell everybody, give it at least three to four weeks of coming to a church. Because not every service is the same. Nicodemus is has this cautionary tale here. He's coming to Jesus at night because he's not ready yet to step out of what his what he knows is true. Because you have you have to remember, even though the Pharisees added all these other laws in, to control people, at the core of the law they knew the Torah. Okay? And Jesus was coming to fulfill the Torah that we can see how he fulfilled it, but they couldn't see that at the time. Does that make sense? And so it could have been from caution. Uh, letter B there, the rabbis declared that the best time to study the law was at night when a man was undisturbed. The rabbis declared that the best time to study the law was at night when a man was undisturbed. And I gotta tell you, that's that's why I usually take Saturday night to get ready for Sunday because the, the evening time, you know, after nine o'clock, unless it's an emergency, my phone doesn't ring. After about 10 o'clock, the other three in our household are starting to crash and things get quiet. The dog's in its kennel and you can focus in on what you're doing. And so that could be another reason. Um, now, Jesus tells Nicodemus that you must be born again. And there's three different ways that this concept of the word again can be misunderstood. In Greek, it's it's a word that is it's the Greek word is anathen, a n o t h e n, and it means it has three different meanings. And so here again, remember for those of you that have been in all of the college classes, going back to the very first semester, our five steps of interpretation. The first one is the first one is the word. Yeah, because. Remember we said in the Greek language there's a, so many more words than in the English language. And so we use the word again, and so because you have to go to the word, the word can mean three different things, and we're trusting the translator to read into what it says when we read it. That's why we go back to those original words. There's actually three different meanings of this word. The first one there is it can mean from the beginning. From the beginning. Now, that doesn't fit 
the context of the next step, which is after the word, it's what? Verse. After the verse, it's what? After the chapter, it's what? After the last one? Bible. And so from the beginning, being born from the beginning, that doesn't fit the context of the verse, the chapter, the, any of it. Okay, so we can pull that meaning and leave it aside that this definitely doesn't mean to be born from the beginning. The second one, uh, the second meaning can be, it can mean again, in the sense of a second time, which is the way that Nicodemus read it or heard it. Okay, it can mean again, be born again. So does that one fit again? Yeah, that kind of fits, but not logistically. And because and, and, notice that Jesus doesn't even really respond to, to Nicodemus' question from verse 4 when he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb to be born? Jesus just kind of goes on something different. Okay, he doesn't really respond specifically to that. So that tells me, okay, the word again can fit, but it doesn't necessarily fit in the passage. Okay? So then it comes to the third meaning, and that's this one. It can mean from above, therefore from God. From above, therefore from God. That's what the three meanings of the Greek word that's translated in, in King James as again is, is done. So now it's the responsibility, and it's one of the reasons why I believe in the King James Version. But when I say the Word of God is infallible and without mistake, I'm not talking about the King James Version. I'm talking about the original manuscript. Okay? And it's up to men. Now, I believe that the King James Version is probably the closest word for word translation, if you will. But even then, you're looking at a group of men that decided what was going to be said. And so you get different things that may or may not totally jive with the whole context of what you're looking at. So when I read this and I see in verse 3, except the man be born again, yeah, I understand what it means because we have used the concept of the born again experience for so long in all kinds of evangelical circles. And if you just even do a man on the street interview of those that will, you can ask them, well, have you been born again? Oh, yeah, I'm a born again believer. They have no idea what born again believer means, but they are one. Okay? And, and, and so that, that terminology of being born again has been so used that it's seared into our conscious that this doesn't make, that, that doesn't mess us up. But the greater translation, when you take it from the five steps, the word, the verse, the chapter, the, the book, the Bible, born from above means more. It's connected more. For instance, uh, just take one, two pages back over to verse 12 and 13. We quoted it already. But as many as received him gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God, but or, nor of the will of man, but of God. From above. Okay? So I don't know why the King James translators didn't catch verse 12 and 13 and attach it to chapter 3, verse 
uh, for and translate that to be born from above. Now, in my Bible, and I don't even know what kind of Bible this is, it's a King James, but I have center marks, and the word again has a notation in the middle that says from above. So it's not an actual text, but they that's how they noted it in this Bible. And, and so, um, when Jesus says, I say unto you, except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus caught the again part of it. And maybe that's why they put again in verse 3, because of Nicodemus's question. Okay? And Nicodemus says, can I go back into a mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus responds in verse 5, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So what does that message tell us between verse 3 and verse 5? Well, it's quite simple. The, the, the being born from above, the way that you're born from above, is not going back into a mother's womb and being born again. Being born from above means being born of the water of the Spirit. Okay? It's, it's not natural. It's a supernatural. It's a heavenly birth, if you will. It was not the desire that Nicodemus questioned. He already knew that or he wouldn't have come to Jesus. It was the possibility of the act. It was the details. I, I mentioned that earlier. And all over this new, all over the New Testament is this concept of a new birth experience or a, or a born again experience or a born from above experience. We see it in the uh, epistles all over the place. It was not even an unfamiliar term with the uh, Greeks, if you will, or the Jews for that matter. Remember again, he's writing mainly to a Greek audience. Um, they had a concept through what was called the mystery. They had a concept called the mystery. Um, it, or misreligion. The Hermetic Mysteries had this as their basic belief. There can be no salvation without regeneration. That sounds pretty biblical, doesn't it? That was the Greek philosophy of the, of the Hermetic Mysteries. There's a man by the name of Apuleius uh, who went, this is how they worded it, okay? Now this isn't scripture, this is, this is just Greek history, if you will. He went through an initiation that he said underwent a voluntary death and thereby obtained his spiritual birthday. Okay? So here again, the Greeks had an understanding in mythology like the Romans at Mars Hill had that unknown God. They knew that there was another God out there somewhere. And remember the Greeks were dealt with Gnosticism. And they were uncertain of whether they could know God. There was a reason, the Logos, there was a reason out there. There was a plan. Somebody ordered it. Somebody dictated it. But we don't know who that is. And John is now taking these Greeks through this philosophy because they've already had it. In fact, one of the most famous ceremonies here in your notes is the Tornobolium. And it's a, a ceremony where a person was reborn for all eternity. And, and so through this ceremony, 
the person went through this and there was four main ideas to this ritual. And this is in your notes. Letter A, the first is the kingdom of God or heaven. And we get our best answer for the kingdom of heaven from the prayer that he teaches in uh, Matthew chapter 6. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's a characteristic of a Jewish style to say things multiple times, at least two times. And the second way is always amplifying the first. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. In other words, there is this place, but there's also a kingdom that has this place in it. It's reaffirming and re-amplifying uh, the first. Okay, so that's, a, that's the first one. The second one there is sonship. And the essence of sonship is love. The Bible says God is love. And obedience, I'm sorry, the essence of love is obedience. I obey because I love him. I don't obey to get something from him. Okay, you notice the difference there? Uh, and sonship then is a privilege. I'm not talking the sonship of Jesus. I'm talking us being a child of God, being a child of, of heaven. That, that role of a son or a daughter it's a privilege that is entered into when obedience to love is given. Okay? It's the reason why sometimes we have to do things for God that just doesn't make human sense. I preached about it on, on Sunday. It doesn't make sense to speak in a language that you don't know until you see what God says about it. Okay? Then it begins to make sense. So you have God or the kingdom of heaven. Then you have the children that come into the kingdom. And the third one there is eternal life. The third is eternal life. It's, it's the idea of being born into a, another life, born from above. So you've got the kingdom of heaven, you've got the, the concept of becoming a child of God, and the way you become a child of God is you're born again or born from above, and when you're born from above, you receive eternal life. And then the last one is, is the entrance of Christ to possess our hearts and our lives. When we are born of the water and of the spirit, or when we are born from above, that's what's happening. It is heaven and us are uniting and we're being born anew, we're being born from above, giving us eternal life, not only eternal life yet to come, but the spirit takes up residence in us and we are born and become spiritual beings. Or the way the apostle Paul writes it in Romans chapter six, the old creature is buried with him in baptism that like as Christ was raised from the dead, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We become a new creature. Uh, because Christ has uh, taken over, if you will. There's another passage where it says, uh, and, and we quoted it last week when we preached, that we would have put Jesus on. He that have been, been baptized into Christ has put on Christ. 
Christ becomes, we become Christ's possession. Does that make sense? And the Greeks didn't use those terms, but that was the same, it was the equivalent of their Torabolium ritual, the, the, the mystic church or the hermetic mystery church. That was there. So when Jesus and John, referring to Jesus, Jesus is letting them know, you've got the form, you just don't have the substance. You've got the understanding of what it means, but I'm giving you the real thing. Does that make sense? And uh, so then Jesus goes on, he says, um, he responds, unless a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now I want you to notice two things. In verse number three, he says, except a man be born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay? He cannot know it. He can't perceive it. Okay? That, that's, that's why there's so many people that don't understand people that serve the Lord. They, because they can't see it. They haven't been regenerated. They haven't been born from above yet. So they can't even perceive the depth and the height and the breadth of what the kingdom of God actually has to offer. And then he goes on in verse 5 and he changes You can't even get into it unless you're born of the water and of the spirit. Now, in your notes uh, there, I, I want you to notice that water is a symbol for cleansing. And burial. Cleansing and burial. And we talked about this uh, last Sunday as well. Um, the, the Red Sea is a form of baptism. As they walk from bondage in Egypt to the wilderness, they walk through the water of the Red Sea. When they got stuck in the wilderness, it was when they walked through Jordan into the Promised Land. And going back even further than that, according to, to Peter in 1 Peter, uh, Noah and his family coming through the flood was like coming through a baptism. Okay, so water is cleansing and burial. Spirit is the symbol for power and life. So when you're born from above, you are cleansed and made righteous and whole, right? And you bury the old, bury the old man. And when you're born of the Spirit, you are infused with power and life. Okay? Now, here's the reason, one of the reasons, why it has been said that, or this is the reason why I believe your born-again experience happens at baptism. Now, there are people that say that it's two different functions. There is the function of the birth of water at baptism, but the birth of the Spirit is when you are baptized with the Holy Ghost uh, and given a gift, and you recognize that through the speaking in tongues. Okay? I have come to the belief and the understanding that the baptism of the Holy Ghost cannot be the thing or the sign of being born of the Spirit. And there's three reasons. Okay, these aren't in your notes. This is just coming from me. Number one is John chapter 1, verse 13. 
John chapter 1, verse 13. To be born of God, it couldn't be born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Okay? The baptism of the Holy Ghost is the spirit of the risen Christ in us that empowers us to become witnesses unto him. Okay? Was Jesus a man? Yes. Did he have blood? Hope so. Otherwise, Calvary doesn't mean a whole lot. Okay? And did he have his own will? Yes. Because we see him praying in Gethsemane and says, not my will, but thy will be done. He had a human will and he had a divine will. And his human will was subject to his divine will. So when you're born of the Spirit, it can't be the gift of the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost, the gift of the Holy Ghost comes from Christ, who, which defies verse 13 right off the bat. and says that can't be the birth. Okay, So that's number one. Number two, the reason why I believe that the baptism and the birth of the Spirit are different functions is the fact that all through Scripture, the baptism of the Holy Ghost is referred to as a gift. And in order for Jesus to have the gift of the Holy Ghost available to us <clears throat> as a gift, how can he make it a gift and then also make it a requirement to be born again? Does that make sense? Do you understand where I'm coming from? If, if the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking out of the tongues based on Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, if that was the born-again experience, then it's not a gift. Okay? It's a requirement. And a gift can't be a requirement. Because Jesus is establishing in chapter 3 that a requirement to enter the kingdom of God is to be born of the Spirit. Okay, does, does anybody have any questions on that? Does that make sense to people? Say it again. <clears throat> sure, if, thanks. If you're born of the Spirit at baptism. Yes. And we'll get to that in just a second. If the baptism of the Holy Ghost that we find in Acts chapter 2 Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19 is the sign of your new birth experience of chapter John chapter 3 being born of the Spirit. Um, it cannot be a gift. It has to be a requirement. Okay? Because Jesus says, unless you're born of the Spirit, you're not entering the kingdom of God. So, one of two things happen. Either we have to do something that requires him to baptize us with the Holy Ghost, or that which is born is a requirement and not a gift. Okay? Because Jesus, if it's a gift, then Jesus is the one that has to give it. So, at this point, we are confusing the terms of this. Big time. Yeah. For years. Mm -hmm. I did the same thing for years. There is a difference between baptism and birth. Okay? And the reason why it's gotten so confused is because of the concept that John says, I baptize with water, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. And so they have taken that concept of John the Baptist and applied it to John 3, but it does not fit. Okay? 
It does not fit, again, number one, because it defies John chapter 1, verse 13, that says you're born not of the will of man, nor of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Well, Jesus had all of those. And John the Baptist said, Jesus is the one that's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Okay? So that, the first one is John chapter 1, verse 13. The second one is a gift can't be a requirement. And the third reason why I don't uh, believe that the baptism of the Holy Ghost is being born of the Spirit, you can find in John chapter 7, if you want to turn over there real quick. John chapter 7. This is at the, the, the day of the feast. Jesus stands and cries and says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me. Um, and drink, and he that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then verse 39 is a parenthesis, it's an offset. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. But there's a problem in that scripture. Can anybody tell me what an italicized word means in scripture? A translator added it for clarification. So if you take the translator's addition out, it reads this way. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for this Holy Ghost, for the Holy Ghost was not yet, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Ghost didn't even come into existence until Jesus was glorified. Because... Jesus had to die and raise, be raised again before the Holy Ghost could ever become an entity, if you will. Does that make sense? And, and so those three reasons are the main three reasons that I believe that there is a difference between the birth of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit. So then I began to ask the Lord, I said, okay, Lord, if that's the case, you're going to have to reveal some things to me. And so I started asking him in scripture, not because of, not just an idea or philosophy, but in scripture, all of a sudden I got this, this intuition, if you will, in John chapter 3. Okay, look at John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus is verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say, he's, he's emphasizing this. He's saying, this is an absolute, is what he's really saying. Notice the first three verse, three words of what he says. Except a man. And then in verse 5, he says it again. He says, except a man. Now remember what John is writing and the foundation of what John is writing on. We talked about it the last couple of weeks out of John chapter 1. John chapter 1 was, the foundation is the Logos did what? Verse 14 of John chapter 1. The Word became, deity became a man. Except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Did Jesus have to sleep? Did he have to eat? Did he have to pray? Why didn't he have to be born again? 
He did. And then I got to thinking, well, I've always been taught that Jesus was born again when he was raised from the dead. No, he was resurrected. That wasn't his born again experience. That, that was his resurrection. He came back from the dead. There, there's something else going on, Lord. And if you're an example to me, for instance, let me put it to you this way. My father has passed from this life, okay? And scripture promises me that there's coming a day when the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up with the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Okay? If the dead have to rise then, was my dad already born again? If Jesus rising from the dead was his born-again experience, wouldn't the born-again experience be my dad coming up from the dead? But my dad was able to see the kingdom, experience the kingdom, enter the kingdom while he was here on earth. So there's a disconnect by saying that Jesus was born again when he was risen from the dead. That him was his resurrection. So then I got to thinking, okay, God, tell me, when was Jesus as a man born again? Now, he was born again for a different reason than we are. <laughs> Okay, because he never had a sinful flesh. He never had to be cleansed. He never had to be made pure. He was pure. Okay? But he did it as an example unto us when he did what? Was baptized. And when John the Baptist took him into the waters and baptized him, what does John say happened when he came up out of the water? The spirit, as a dove, set upon and stayed there. Okay? So if that's our example, now, because of that, the spirit settles on him. Now, the spirit settled on Jesus and remained for a couple different reasons. One, it was to declare that he was indeed the Messiah for John the Baptist. That was a sign. But I also believe that it was to let us know that that's when the Spirit stays with us and takes up residence with us. The Spirit never left John, Jesus after the baptism. It, it, it was it, the, the, the picture for John the Baptist. John said it in chapter 1, I believe, is when we quoted it. It came down from him and stayed on him. Okay? So, it prepared him. Jesus was prepared at his baptism so that he would rise again the third day. It gives a whole new meaning to Jesus looking at John and saying that the scriptures might be fulfilled. I need to do this. Well, what were some of the scriptures that needed to be fulfilled? All of them. He was fulfilling the plan, the logos, the blueprint and he was letting us know it's the reason why you men and women need to be baptized because this is the birthing experience from above. You don't see where it comes from. You don't see where it goes. But if the spirit descends on Jesus at baptism and stays on him, why would we think that the spirit doesn't descend on us and stay on us at our baptism? 
And then that lets me know, okay, so spiritually I am being buried and the old man is being taken care of and I'm being raised again to a new creature, born brand new. Now, why do I know that that's a birth? Turn over with me real quick to Romans chapter 6 and then we're going to get out, out, out of this passage. Well, pastor, if, if you were baptized in Jesus' name and you were buried with Christ in baptism, doesn't that mean that he's the one that raised you from the dead when you come up out of the water? Romans chapter 6. Verse number 3 and 4. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Remember what I said a couple of weeks ago, when you see the son and father relationship, what are we talking about? When we're talking about the Father, what are we talking about? Spirit, deity, divinity. When we're talking about the Son, we're talking about his humanity. He didn't become a son until he was born a son. Okay? And the incarnation is that God takes on him flesh. Okay? So in this passage here, we see that the man Christ Jesus died and was raised by the glory of the Father. That sounds like John 1.13 to me. Born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Deity. Even so, we also should walk. We are raised in our baptism like Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. It's just that Jesus does it as an example for us in his actual baptism, and we appropriate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in our baptism. We're buried with him, and we're raised up like Christ was raised up from the dead. Deity raised his humanity, born from above, God does it. His, his, the deity does it. That which is not of the flesh nor of the will of man. And we are born of the spirit. And now we become spirit men and women because we are born of the water and of the spirit. Does that make sense? And so that's why baptism is so much more powerful than just an outward expression of an inward change. Okay, I don't, I don't like that statement because it devalues in my opinion the concept of baptism. Baptism is where we take on Jesus' name. Baptism is where we take on the glorified flesh, if you will, of Almighty God, because we're raised with Him. We're raised with Christ. Okay? We're raised with Christ's humanity. And it's symbolic, and, but there's coming a day when the trumpet's going to sound and our bodies have already prepared themselves to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Does that make sense? One last reason I, that I want to show you in John chapter 3, I've given you the three reasons why I differentiate between the birth and the baptism of the Spirit, but uh, I want to give you one other reason. <clears throat> Too many people, again with the Greek language, 
when Jesus says you must be born of the water and of the spirit, they use that word and say and means two different things. The problem is, is the Greek word for and doesn't necessarily mean two different things. Okay? That word and can also mean even, also, it can also mean Also an even, that's the words I can go time. It's the word kai, K-A-I, if you will, uh, translated in English letters from Greek. So it could as easily be translated, born of the water, even of the spirit, which doesn't make it two different, two different events. Okay? Does anybody have any questions on these first six verses before we move on? I don't have an overhead projector. Do you? What's that? Yeah. Yeah. No, this is this is the reason. The reason why it's deep is because we've had so much teaching that doesn't line up with that. But I'll tell you, when I came to this revelation 13 years ago, just before we came here, it was one of the troubling things in my spirit. And it's one of the things that when I finally looked at my wife and said, I'm actually reading the word of God for the word of God and not trying to prove my point. Okay. Now, somebody else can come along and give me a better explanation of the difference between being born and being baptized in the spirit how a gift can become a requirement how all of the things that we've heard throughout all of christendom really um and it works both ways it's the reason why i can't just accept the concept of accepting him as my personal savior that's powerful but there's so much more to it there's so much deeper levels that we can walk in. Okay? And so the flip side is, is, is to me adding to what is really in the meaning. It makes so much more sense when I connect the concept of deity and humanity and these scriptures together. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt now that baptism is where you're born of the water and the spirit. Just like Jesus was. We want to be like him, don't we? <laughs> and uh, so, but it's so exciting once you get that revelation because then it opens up all kinds of avenues of the scripture. It really, it, it adds so much even to the gift of the Holy Ghost. Because the, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, when I was growing up, the baptism was something that I had to have. And so we were always worried about getting the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We measured everything by whether somebody was baptized in the Holy Ghost or not. Camp meetings and revivals and all kinds of things were not successful in our eyes if people didn't receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Because we had put the baptism of the Holy Ghost 
as the new birth experience. And so when somebody didn't receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost and they walked away, in the back of our minds, we may have never voiced this, but in our spirit, in our mind, in our thinking, they're lost. And they felt the same way. And they fought for it. And they, they, you know, friends of ours would tarry service in, service out. And the only explanation that anybody would ever give for them not receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost was that there must be some unrepentant sin somewhere. And the problem with that is, who are we to judge whether there's an unrepentant sin? And if it's a gift of God, he's going to give it to us. He just says to seek and to, to, to chase after, if you will, the best gift. You may not catch it right away, but if you'll keep seeking it yeah. at his timing, he'll give it to you. It, it reminds me of having children and them wanting, a, I've got a gift for you. Well, I want it, I want it. No, no, no. I bought it in July, but you have to wait for Christmas. This is your Christmas gift. What? <laughs> it's my prerogative. It's my gift to you. I will give it to you when I'm ready to give it to you. Okay? The difference is God wants to give us, Jesus wants to give us his gift, but he's sometimes his timing and our timing don't line up. And it's our responsibility just to keep seeking the gift, but to live in victory because I've already been born of the Spirit. It's not a, I have to get. And so there is a pressure to receive a gift. So if I have a gift to give my sons and I get it in July and I say you can't get it till Christmas, if it's something that they have to have, then I'm in the wrong, if, in my opinion, in not giving it to them when they're asking for it. Do you see the, the connection? So if the baptism of the Holy Ghost is the birth of the Spirit, and it's a necessity, then when I ask him for it, and if I need it, the Bible has already established that he likes to give good gifts. Why would he withhold it if it was necessary? Okay? I believe the baptism of the Holy Ghost is necessary for different reasons, but the way I was raised, it was necessary to be saved. Okay? You weren't saved unless you spoke in tongues. And so we put such a prominence or preeminence on speaking in tongues. Now, I believe that the gift of the Holy Ghost, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, is necessary in order to strengthen us, empower us, uh, mobilize us, use us. It gives us insight that we wouldn't normally have. It's a guide, according to John 14. It's a comforter, according to John 14. It's Christ in us. Does that make sense? So... That's what's exciting about that passage. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you just some fill-in-the-blank answers here as we go through verses 7 through 13. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. It's a requirement to be born again. So there again, not to beat a old horse, but that's why the gift of the Holy Ghost can't be a must as well. The wind blows where it listeth, and now hears the sound thereof, and cannot tell where it comes from or whither it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. 
Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said, Are you a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I had told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that cometh down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Okay, this is kind of an interesting passage here. Uh, let me just give you the fill in the blanks part of it here. There's two kinds of misunderstanding that people have. A man has not reached the stage of understanding or knowledge. A man has not reached the stage of understanding or knowledge or experience. A man has not reached the stage of understanding or knowledge or experience at which he is able to grasp the truth. Okay? So Nicodemus, Jesus is saying, listen, you might not quite be there yet. And if he would have listened to Jesus when Jesus said, verse 3, he would have understood. You're not going to perceive the spiritual things because you don't have the understanding, the knowledge, or the experience yet. The flip side of that argument is that when you do come to the understanding, when you do come to the knowledge, when you do come to the experience, it's the reason why there is not one person that can't help but smile when they come up out of the waters of baptism. Because they are experiencing something that they could not understand before. Okay? They are gaining knowledge, whether they recognize what they're gaining or not, that's a different story. But they're gaining it by the experience and understanding of what's going on. And then number two there, the second, uh, a man is unwilling to do any of the above, or unwilling to have the experience, unwilling to have the knowledge, unwilling to have the understanding. And Jesus uses the idea of the wind, which both the Greek and the Hebrew use the same for spirit. Okay, so John is letting them know both the Greek and Jew understand the concept of the spirit and the wind. And it's interesting. You may not understand how the spirit works or where it comes from, but you can see the effects of it. Okay? Just look on, on Facebook this week and go to Nicole Vesterman's page. That's the one I know that she's got some on there. And just look at, you can see the difference. There is a manifest difference of somebody before they go down in the waters and then they come back up. It's amazing to me. Okay, verse 13 and or 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Okay. John is using this reference to Moses being lifted up it, it, that's found in Numbers 21. Uh, Numbers 21, 4 through 9. And so then he likes it to Jesus being lifted up. Now, there's a wonderful suggestion to this two verses that John uses. The verb to lift up is the Greek word hupsun. Maybe. That's what it looks like at least. And the strange thing is that it's used of Jesus in two senses. 
Okay, the first one to lift up is a Greek word. In, in, in verse one, the first is his being lifted up on the cross. And I've given you some scriptures there. As Jesus is lifted up on the cross, people believed in him. Okay? You get, when you grasp what Calvary was, the Son of Man hanging on the cross between heaven and earth, just like the serpent did with Moses, and you start tying some of the scriptures together, by his stripes we are healed. All of that that's going on there is such a beautiful picture of the opportunity now that God has had, or that has God has given us to be made whole. And then the second one is his lifting up to glory. Acts chapter 2 and 5 and Philippians chapter 2. If we only had Calvary where he was lifted up, we'd still be of most men miserable. But because we have him lifted up at Calvary and we have him lifted up ascending into glory, we have the hope of eternal life. They go hand in hand, and it's the concept of being lifted up. Now, there's two expressions to notice. Uh, first, the phrase that speaks of believing in Jesus. He that believeth in me. Okay? Um, it means believing with all of our hearts that God is as Jesus declared him to be. It means believing with all of our hearts that God is as Jesus declares him to be. As we go forward in the book of John, we're going to see more declarations about who he is. Number two, we must believe that God was manifest in the man Christ Jesus. This is imperative to conclude that in Jesus was the mind of God. And if you want to put Philippians chapter 2 next to that. The Logos, the word that was made flesh, when we see them being lifted up in Calvary and in glory, we're seeing the act of God, the mind of God. And then we must, in believing in him, he that believeth in me, we must stake everything in the fact that what Jesus says is true. Is true. You see, there's a lot of people that quote unquote believe in him. They just believe that he is. But they don't believe what Jesus declares God to be. They don't believe uh, that uh, Jesus was the mind of God, the plan of God. They don't believe that everything that Jesus says is true. They just believe in God. Okay? Believing goes beyond just mental assent. Okay? It's the other reason why I look at the, the statement, I accepted the Lord Jesus as my personal Savior. That is a launching point, not an end point. Because if you can't really believe him, you can accept him, but you won't believe him until you experience him. You won't believe him until you see some things. You won't believe in him until you've got some, some 
you know, experiences under your belt. Does that make sense? Okay, and then the second phrase in your notes there is eternal life. Is eternal life. And to have eternal life is more than just eternity. It also deals with the concept of quality down here. I am living right now my eternal life. My eternity started on June 16, 1980, when I was baptized in his name. That's when eternity started for me. That's why if the Lord doesn't tarry and I'm taken from this earth physically, I'm still alive. Because I've already started my eternal life. Okay? So I get pictures of it. Now, there's going to be a great vast difference between living here and living there, but my life already is eternal. I'm already a spiritual being, if you will. I already have the components in me to be glorified or transformed, according to 1 Corinthians 15, when we shall be changed in the moment of the twinkling of an eye, that which is mortal shall put on immortality, and that which is corruptible shall put on incorruption. Okay, when that happens, that's already in us. Okay, and because that's already in us, it gives us five things at least here. Number one, it gives us peace with God. Okay, now some churches, some people will, will use the term eternal security. Okay, once saved, always saved. Um, and, and that concept and argument on both sides of the issue. I'll just be honest with you, the older I get and the longer I pastor and preach and teach, the more frustrating that statement gets. Because we have, as Christians, become so consumed with the concept of salvation. Don't get me wrong, it's important. But salvation, in most people's minds, isn't what salvation truly should be. In most people's minds, salvation is, am I ready to go to heaven? Or am I going to hell? That's the concept of salvation. But salvation is so much deeper. I don't worry about missing heaven because I'm saved every day by my relationship with him. Okay? I have a father-son relationship with him now, and that means that not that I'm that 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 means that I am eternally secure in him as long as I seek him. He's not going to let me go. The only way that my born-again experience is going to be nullified is if I do what the prodigal did and said, I want my inheritance now, I'm going to do my own thing. Okay? So while I don't believe in quote-unquote once saved, always saved, I do believe that when I was born again, he gave me eternal security in the fact that I have a relationship right now, right here today. I'm already operating today like I'm going to operate then when I get to heaven. I worship him today like I'm going to worship him in heaven. I'm serving him today like I'm going to serve him into heaven. So in all actuality, even though I'm stuck in this earthly vessel and in this world, I'm operating my life like I'm already in my heavenly home. It's the reason why we can't let the weights of this world hang on us because we're not of this world. We are strangers and foreigners and pilgrims is what the word of God says. 
And if we would ever get into idea and the understanding, get ready to preach here, and get the understanding that it's not just the destination, is not just the place that we're going to go. Destiny is the whole journey that we're on. And so I have peace with God today. God, I love you like a son, and you love me like, or I love you like a father, and you love me like a son. And I'm going to stick with you. So I'm at peace with you. If you want to come today, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Okay, so we have peace with God. Number two, it gives us peace with men. Okay, I would be naive to say that all men or women like me. Some probably don't. But that's okay. I'm at peace because I'm confident in who I am in him. So what somebody does on this level, while it may hurt from time to time, it does not define me anymore. Does that make sense? Because of what's in this scripture. I believe on him. And by the way, I'm not going past 15, so don't panic. Uh, verse 15, if you believe in him, you should not perish, but have eternal. Eternal life is having peace with men. Or women, the horizontal relationship, if you will, that that which is face to face, person to person, and not a vertical as it is face to face with him. I have peace with him, and because I have peace with him, I have peace with. And, and what it really boils down to is confidence in who you are. See, I I have taught, and my wife can affirm this. I have said this for years and years. The greatest shame for all Christianity is that people are not confident enough in who they are in God. Have I said that? And so what ends up happening, because I'm not in confident in what I am with him, then I'm carried about by the whims of people. And so if a preacher doesn't like me, then I'm not doing what's right. And if the church isn't operating like the church down the street, then I'm not doing something right. But I need to get confident in who I am in him. And if I'm doing what he wants me to do, it doesn't matter what the church down the street does. It doesn't matter what the neighbor's doing. It doesn't matter what my family's doing. If I'm doing what he's wanting me to do, I'm at peace. Okay? And so what ends up happening, because I have eternal life, I'm at peace with humanity. Therefore, I'm not comparing myself to others. Now, it's easy to do, and, and I'm not saying that I always don't do it. Sometimes I wonder, okay, are we doing this? Is this set up the right way? And are we operating the right way? Am I preaching the right way? Am I teaching the right way? Should I do this kind of thing or that kind of thing? Because it seems to be successful over here, over there. I, I, I think about that, but then I take a step back and say, no, I know what God has called me to do. And the people that attend this church... If I'm doing, if I'm trying to do what John Doe down the street is trying to run their church, well, why would they want to come to Spirit of Grace? Just go to that church. Does that make sense? But God called me to be a specific way, to be a specific person, to be a specific leader, and He's drawn the people that connect to that spirit, that mode, that operation, and that's what makes you successful. And so you have peace with God, you have peace with men, you have peace with life. You have peace with life. When you, when you know you're living an eternal life, you can be at peace with your life. The people that are not at peace with their life are the people that have questions about their God. Okay? 
let me just say it again. The people that are not at peace in their life are the people that have questions about their God. Or their relationship with God is probably should word that better. Well, I haven't prayed enough. I haven't fasted enough. I haven't read the Bible enough. Surely God doesn't love me. And their life is miserable. Okay? But if you fulfill the believing what Jesus declared him to be, that he has the mind of God, that everything that Jesus says is true, then he that believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, that word perish there as well doesn't just mean death. Okay, and I'm trying to think of the scripture. I can quote the scripture, but I can't place the scripture. So I'm going to quote it, and then somebody else can tell me what the reference is. I wasn't going to quote it. Without a vision, the people perish. It's Psalm something, I think. Without a, well, it could be Proverbs. Without a vision, the people perish. Okay, that's not talking just about a plan. It's not talking, it means casting off all restraint. There it is. That is the one. Proverbs 29, 18. When you cast off all restraint, you perish. Okay? But that word perish doesn't mean die. When you cast off all restraint, it can mean die, but it means you go into chaos. Okay? If you're trying to do everything, you're not accomplishing anything. Okay? You've cast off your restraint, and now you're just scattered to the wind. Okay? It's not just physical death. So when he says here in John 315, who should not perish, it's not just dying, and it's not just life in the eternity. It's right now. We should be living our lives without being scattered. Now, that's a challenge. Because we all have calendars that we have filled. And here's the, here's the problem. And, and then I'll give you the last two before we go. Here's and when I say problem, I, I use that term even loosely. When you have, notice the progression here. We have peace with God. We have peace with men. We have peace with life. Okay? If you are connected to him and you're not worried about what's happening here, what you put into your calendar is going to be what he wants and not what you're trying to fix. Here. Does that make sense? We get so consumed and tied up with trying to make this level right that all of a sudden we're saying yes to everything because God forbid anybody should be upset with me. Okay? But here's the thing. If I know he's pleased with me and I'm doing what he wants me to do, you can get upset with me all you want. I'm going to please him. Okay? And if I'm going to let you get upset with me, it means that I'm not going to jump through every hoop and make my life chaotic in order to make sure that you're not upset with me or disappointed in me. Does that mean, it's, I'm not saying this is easy, but I'm saying this is what we have the opportunity to do if we believe on him. Okay? If we believe that Jesus knows who we are and loves us beyond measure, why are we worried about who likes us and doesn't like us? 
Now, I know that that sounds kind of cold and even harsh to a certain extent. And some people, when I've said that in the past, think, well, that's easy for you. You don't like being around people. Which isn't necessarily true. But, that, but I don't worry about it. I'll be honest with you, I've got so much else on my plate, I can't worry about it. Can I tell you as a pastor, I don't ever want anybody to leave our church. But I know that they will. And I have one of two choices to make. Am I doing what he's asked me to do? And if I'm doing what he's asked me to do and they decide to leave, there's nothing I can do about it. So why should I get wrapped up in it? Does that make sense? And, and that's me, but this applies to every one of our lives. If, if you're doing what God has asked you to do and you are pleasing him, it, you can be satisfied with your life and you don't have to make it chaotic in order to meet 15 different things. Because here's what I have come to determine, and, and I even mentioned it in our business meeting, where health is better than anything else. To be healthy. It's not healthy to burn the candle at both ends. It's not healthy to try to meet this need and that need. And it's the reason why sometimes my wife and I have had to say, no, we can't meet with you this week. You still want to meet with us, we'll meet with you next week. Because we have recognized that the schedule has gotten off kilter and it becomes unhealthy for us, it becomes unhealthy for our family, and it's got to be balanced. Does that make sense? Okay, so then it gives us peace with ourselves. How many know people that just, they have to have drama happen? And if it gets calm or peaceful, they create their own drama. The reason is, is because they're not comfortable with who they are. And if you know people like that, recognize that. They're not peaceful with themselves. And the reason that they're not peaceful with themselves is because they're not peaceful with their life, because they're not peaceful on this level, because they're not deep. You see the progression that, I, that I've given you from God to man to life itself to ourselves? Okay? I'm comfortable in my own skin. Sometimes people have even read that as almost arrogance. I'm not an arrogant person. I know that I'm not any better than anybody else. But I'm very confident in what God has given me. And I'm very confident in the Word of God. Because I have peace with Him. I'm not worried about this. I've learned that my life doesn't have to be chaotic. So I'm good with me. It's a whole different way of living. Can I tell you what it's lit? What it is? It's living the heavenly life on earth. It's living the eternal life that I started at ten years old, and I have been working on it since I was ten. Have I always made the right decisions, the right choices? No, but because I got an understanding of this concept at a very young age, I knew what I was doing when I was twelve. I knew what I was doing when I was 14. I knew I was going to Bible college at 15, I just didn't know which one. Because at the time I was raised in the Bible college, the church 
and, and then I was gonna put something on video and I won't. It would have been just a then something happened and I went east to Dover and I knew that. I knew where I was going. I didn't have any second thoughts when I pulled out of our driveway. I knew I was going and I knew I wasn't coming back. Not because I didn't like Minnesota, but because I knew God had a journey for me. So two months after I was gone, I was hired. I was there for five years. Went to Kansas City for 16. Then the Lord brought me back. It took him 16 years to just soften Trisha's heart to come back to Minnesota. <laughs> I'm just teasing. And then the last one here, just for your notes. It makes the person certain that the deepest peace on earth is only a shadow of the ultimate peace that is to come. As peaceful and as confident, as rested as I get here, it's just a small amount of what we're getting ready to experience over there. Amen. Praise God. Does anybody have any questions or comments? Uh-oh. Gives us peace with God. The same the Pharisees were six thousand men, and the Sanhedrin was I can't remember the exact number, but it was kind of pulled out from them. So it was a Yes. But the Sanhedrin were the Pharisees too. They were Pharisees that were it's kind of like a special council, if you will, within the within the body of Seventy. I wasn't sure if it was fifty, I don't know how much seventy. Yeah, so seventy Pharisees that were elevated to a, basically the ruling of the Yes, sir. This is a little bit off, but it's a little bit. Do you believe that Nicodemus really in his heart wanted to believe what Jesus had and not just catch him like, I'm a Pharisee and I'm going to catch you? Yes. The reason why I believe that, if he didn't start that way, it happened real quick that way because I do believe it's the same Nicodemus at the end of Christ's life. Because I always believe that. And then tonight it's like, boom. Yeah. No, I believe that. I believe... Where I was coming from as far as the questions for Nicodemus was he wanted to know, you have to remember the Pharisees knew the Old Testament and they understood the prophecies. It's the reason why it's hard to believe that they missed what was actually happening. Um, and, and so I believe that he had an understanding, but at the same time I believe that he was wary of jumping into things that may not have been as it seemed, because a lot of the people thought John the Baptist was the Messiah. We read that in the beginning of chapter 1. I'm not him. People ask, are you the Messiah? I'm not him. And so I, what I believe is there was probably well, have you ever heard of the Maccabees? The intertestament? I believe that some people probably thought that some of the leaders of the Maccabees were the Messiah. Because they came 
Because you have to remember the view of the Messiah was to come and overtake and overthrow their kingdoms and set up Israel as the as the ruling nation again. Okay? And so there were zealots that came over and over. Uh, Judas Iscariot was really a zealot as well. And, and I think that's what disillusioned Judas Iscariot was the fact that Jesus wasn't ushering in the kingdom like he pictured it was going to. In fact, all of the disciples, because in Acts chapter 1, after all of this, they still ask Jesus again, recognize, they ask, are you going to restore now the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, you don't know the time or the hour. Okay, so Nicodemus, I think, was ready. But at the same time, he was kind of trying to walk in two, two worlds. Um, but obviously, at some point in time, he fully converted because he wouldn't have done what he did at the end of Jesus' life had he not had some kind of experience with him. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, they were... Well, you notice that a lot of times in Scripture, if you read it, Jesus doesn't blast the Sanhedrin. He blasts the Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, you hypocrites. Um, I think the reason is, is because, just for lack, it's, it's not a perfect example, but I picture the Sanhedrin kind of like the Supreme Court. Okay? They don't get out of the media very often and blast away on different things. They don't confront, but behind doors, they're quiet. Then they give their thing. They don't even do it face to face. They just release their decision. Okay, I kind of sense the Sanhedrin. Could be another reason why Nicodemus came at night because he was he was doing something that was out of protocol for a Sanhedrin. Um, and I think Jesus respected that. Um, and that's why I think sometimes the Sanhedrin wasn't what God and Jesus face all the time. It was the Pharisees. And remember, there were 6,000 of them, 70 of them were Sanhedrin. Does that make sense? And so when Nicodemus comes to him, number one, he came to him face to face, so that shows a certain amount of respect right off the bat. He never comes out and chastises. None of the Sanhedrin that I can think of do, other than the high priest, obviously, at the trial. That by the end of Jesus' life, but during Jesus' life, it's always the first to the Pharisees for the most part. Anybody else?